the following episode of Geeks and Beats contains language or subject matter that may be unsuitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. This recording session is saving me from having yet another delayed gratification conversation with the teenager. You know, the whole idea of good things come to those who wait. Yes. Um, and in a Now, sooner... spoken from a man who goes out and gets every new gadget that comes on the market. You would think that's the case, but I'm still rocking the iPhone 7, my friend. Are you really? I am. Actually, the iPhone 7 is the most popular iPhone in the United States. Okay, whatever, whatever. Continue on with the daughter. I don't want to get sidetracked. Go ahead. 5.7% of all whatever, iPhones whatever, are Whatever, iPhone whatever, 7. whatever, whatever. You're just behind. But you know, that's the one thing I'm ahead of you on. I know. I'm, I'm really blown away by that. You got mm. the iPhone 10, and my favorite part about, and I tell this story to everybody, about when they came out with the very first large form factor iPhone, you had to figure out whether or not it would fit in your front pocket. So you cut up with the two form factors, a pizza box. Yes. And had the regular iPhone. I, th what, I think it was the seven at the time, the seven mm, and the seven plus or something yes, like that. Yes, as a matter of fact, you're correct. And so, or the first time they came out with a plus model. And so you had to, you put both of them in your pocket to see which one would be more or less comfortable. That's right. I was really impressed with that. That's, I've never heard of anybody doing that. I was very, very conflicted as to which size I should get. And I decided on the regular size one. Right. And is that the one that you have now? Uh, yes, I have a regular size one. So you never went up to the super extra large? No. I'm, I'm happy with, with the one if it's in my hand nicely, if it's in my pocket nicely. Uh, and uh, although it is a little annoying when it comes to reading long form text, I'm fine. Yeah, my problem's a little bit different. I'm finding that as I get older, either my eyes can't see close enough or my arms aren't long enough. Dead From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, simulcast on shortwave radio and Citizens Van 14, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. Excuse me while I kiss this guy. Daryl Ballantyne of Lyric Find joins us. We'll pull back the curtain on the business of getting the lyrics right. We're almost at our funding goal for CES 2020. We'll make it so long as Alan doesn't mind staying at a hotel you might have seen on CSI Las Vegas. Yeah, I've, I've been there. Don't want to do that anymore. Anymore? Yeah, just leave it at that. And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. Okay, I've crunched the numbers. Okay, this is about CES. This is about Vegas, baby, Vegas. We are 82.68% of the way to CES 2020. What? How did we jump from 30% to 82%? Well, we got a whole bunch of listeners supporting the big show, not just through GoFundMe, but through Patreon and PayPal. And we have an additional sponsor now. This is my guys, right? These are your guys. Yes. See, I, I brought something to the table. You brought something to the table. $1,000. What's the name of this company? Audis. A-U-D-E-Z-E. -E. I looked up Audis when they said, hey, you know, we'll be interested in throwing you some hardware. And uh, yeah, we, we got a thousand bucks we can send your way. I looked up their hardware, their headphones. These are $1,500 headphones. No, 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 no. They're good. I have one of their lower-end models. What's a lower-end model? $900? Uh, no, $399, I think. That is amazing. Yeah. 
these are these they've got to be insane headphones if you're willing to drop fifteen hundred bucks. They're, I, you know, the most expensive headphones I have are five hundred dollars. Um, I I've never I I've listened to one pair of fifteen hundred dollar headphones and they're astounding. They're really good. Well, they're willing to throw us some of their gear to give away on the big show as well. Great. So we're going to make that happen. And the idea as to how we're going to make that happen is like the digital raffle ticket that we've done in the past for Patreon fans of the big show, people who sign up at patreon.com and support the show. So if you go to gofundme.com, for every dollar you help get us to CES 2020 with, that's one raffle ticket in the system. And we've got a bunch of gear that we'll be giving away by way of this method. So if you donate a hundred bucks to get us to CES, which, you know, that'll get Alan a good steak dinner. And maybe half a ticket to see David Lee Roth's residency. True. Although you can specify that your funding will not support in any way, shape, or form Diamond Dave. Fine, fine, fine. Stefan Duborn made that request just last week. All right, fine, whatever. But for every dollar you donate, that's a raffle ticket. And we've got a bunch of gear that we'll be giving away live at the show. So now that we've hit the more than 82% mark of our funding goal of $10,000 to send you, me, and our ace director, Sean Jate down to CES 2020, I've started looking up flights to get the tickets mm -hmm. to get us down there. Mm -hmm. Do you have a particular favored? Uh, it's got to be Air Canada. I need the points. Air Canada? I need the points. Any Star Alliance, I need the points. Okay. Um, I'm a points pig. Sorry. But Air, but Rouge sucks so bad. I know. I don't. No, it's spelled. You spelled it wrong. It's uh, R-O-U-G-H. It's Air Canada rough. Air Canada rough, not Air Canada Rouge. Yeah. All right. I know, I know it stinks, but um, I need the points. Victor Biggio, our, our longtime patron in residence, has said that if you donate 100 bucks or more to the GoFundMe campaign, he will send you a miracle travel mug of traveling, which keeps hot beverages hot and cold beverages cold using the power of science. And he's just pulling it right off our Geeks and Beats swag store. So that's another reason to donate to the big show, in addition to all of this really fabulous gear that we've managed to land from a bunch of uh, really supportive uh, organizations, in addition to Audis. I've got, sitting in the Geeks and Beats Studio 3B, a pair of augmented reality smart sunglasses. From who? It's called Solos. Okay. I'm just pulling it up right here. And we use these on my future rhythmic documentary series as examples of smart communication. So they're for people who are like really into cycling. It does wayfinding. It keeps track of how fast you're going, all that kind of stuff in a little heads up display in these sunglasses. Mm, okay. So, you know, you, you could win that in addition to a bunch of things. So now we're 82% of the way. Just the home stretch for the big show to get us there is going to geeksandbeats.com right at the top of the page. Click on the button that uh, tells you to get to CES 2020, and you can help us out in a bunch of different ways. PayPal is a way you can do it as well. Patreon, as well as the GoFundMe campaign. Okay. Uh, next week, I will uh, be... Hang on, hang on. What about the hotels? Oh. Now, here's the thing. Victor, who is our patron in residence, has a relationship with the Palms. So he's going to try to talk to the Palms. Palms is a good place. I like the Palms. Palms is good. However, if that doesn't happen, we have to ask ourselves, how much are we willing to rough it? Oof. Because I've pulled up on the Hotels.com right, uh, for the uh, four nights for three adults. I'm going to Trivago. Let's see here. 
Okay. I'm seeing anything from $142 a night to $717 a night. Okay. What's our date? Uh, we're going to be there the 5th through 9th. 5th through 9th. Okay. That's Sunday, so January 5th. Through the 9th. Okay. So we check in on the 5th because the Sunday night, there's a preview night for CES 2020. And then the Monday night, there's a second preview night. So we'll gather a bunch of interesting uh, stuff about the, the gadgets and the gear that's going to be released at CES 2020. And then the opening day is the Tuesday, the 7th. We'll be live on location from the APMA Tech booth. That is the Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association of Canada's technology conference booth. These guys are the folks uh, who are helping bring the self-driving car to Canada. We'll be live there uh, in the evening, so about 8 p.m. Eastern time, just towards the end of the day, which gives us the full day to go through the actual show. Good. So you can go off and you can do your automotive and your uh, audio gear type stuff. I can go check out augmented and virtual reality and, of course, we'll meet together at the Sexbot convention. Yes, of course. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what we'll do. And then we'll do the show live. And then the next day, the day after the live show, well, I want us to stick around because there's so much going on that we don't want to leave after the show. We want to go to keynote speeches. We want to do interviews. We want to gather a ton of content that we can use on the show right. uh, for you know a month after that. This is true. Okay, I'm just looking at hotel prices. Um, oh, the Palazzo at the Venetian. Uh, nine sixty eight a night. No, no, no. See, like we we could go off the strip. We could go to the old Fremont. No stretch. No. Well, we're only going to be sleeping in the hotel, right? We're not going to be and actually doing a lot of editing and crap like that. No, it's true. MGM so Grand it doesn't Island. really matter where we stay. Palms is four sixty two. That seems a bit dear. Yeah, I'm looking at Paris at four forty. Uh, I'm looking at the Venetian at 700. Yeah, so I think we're probably moving more in the direction of the 200 to 300. Yeah, night. well, that's yeah. You know, it's it's that that's going to be the the one of the biggest costs associated with it. It is. It it really is. Uh, and we don't want to use up all the money we're saving in a hotel room on taxis and Ubers, right? Well, it's just something that's going to happen. Yeah. Well, Paris 554. Ooh, the Trump. No. My favorite story about the Trump International Hotel in Las Vegas doesn't actually have a casino. Yeah, I know. They couldn't get a license. That man is completely incapable of making money in the casino business. Uh, yes. What kind of stable genius is that? <laughs> uh, the Stratosphere, 326. Well, that's back to Fremont Street, though, right? Not quite. But close. Uh, close enough. Yeah. Uh, Tahiti Village Resort and Spa. That sounds gross. One year for CES 20, uh, I think it was 2016 at CTV. My producer's like, I found a place. It's $47 a night. <laughs> yeah, I'll be staying there with all the rubbies. Yeah. Yeah, it was like, like you fully expected there to be a chalk outline on the floor in the room from the previous occupant. <laughs> Dark in the city, night is a wire.
At geeksandbeats.com, Krista Sampson writes that in a time when technology is often used for poaching music, one Canadian company has sought to restore the most proprietary attribute of a song, its lyrics. And coincidentally, they're the most popular and widely searched music content on the internet today. Yeah, it used to be that people would take it upon themselves to transcribe songs either from liner notes or just by listening to songs and post that online. That became a kind of a Wild West situation because, first of all, lyrics are copyrighted material. And second, a lot of these lyrics were incorrect. <laughs> so a number of companies tried to step in and sort things out so that these people who were doing this illegally wouldn't keep getting these takedown notices and people who were searching for lyrics could actually find what they were looking for. I love the fact that you point out that many of those lyrics were incorrect because I think misheard lyrics, that's one of the our culture's biggest joys. You know what they're called? What? They're called mondegreens. Mondegreen is a term for a misheard lyric. Yes. What's your favorite misheard lyric? Uh, Jimi Hendrix, uh, excuse me while I kiss this guy. Right. Yeah. In 2004, University of Waterloo classmates got together to build Lyric Find. And I suppose, you know, this is well after, to your point, we had albums. I suppose one of the biggest reasons why we bought albums, aside from the actual music, was the liner notes and the lyrics that came with them. Yes. So Lyric Find was the brainchild of Daryl Ballantyne and Mohamed Mutadain and Chris Book. Joining us now is one of the trio. Daryl Ballantyne joins us now. Good to have you with us. Well, thanks for having me on, guys. You've never met Daryl, have you? I have not. Have you? I, I tend to meet Daryl only in Singapore <laughs> and, and other conferences around the world. Yeah, never, never in Toronto. Never, never in Toronto. Always someplace 13,000 miles away. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing how that happened. So what led you to create Lyric Find? So we actually started off uh, originally the very first time in uh, 2000, trying to create a consumer-facing website. And that started with Chris trying to figure out what the name of a song was. And we were in first-year university at Waterloo at the time, and I was always that guy that had a head filled with music knowledge, but no musical talent whatsoever. Uh, and I could always tell people... <laughs> Welcome to the yeah, club. <laughs> yeah, not, not as filled as your head is. Uh, but I could always tell people who sang that song or what was that song that, that went like this. And Chris was trying to find uh, a song and I actually didn't know. So he went off uh, and tried searching online at the time and said, all these lyrics I'd suck. Let's start our own. And this was March of, of 2000 when the first dot-com boom was taking off and everybody wanted to try to start some sort of a website. So we did and it got really popular in a short period of time, but we realized that we needed licensing for it and shut the whole thing down and uh, tried to get licensing and, and failed miserably. It was a gigantic administrative nightmare. Uh, but then we came back to it after we graduated. Uh, I actually got a call randomly from, uh, from Microsoft when they were launching the MSN Music Store. Uh, and in true metaphor fashion, I was literally about to step on a roller coaster uh, with my family a and my phone rang and they had found our old website that didn't have any lyrics on it but did have my phone number still and said hey we want to uh, include lyric functionality in the MSN music store can you do that I 
well, no, but let me think about it. And made a few calls. I was actually supposed to go and work yeah, at EMI Music on the on the label side in uh, LA post-graduation, but I called my boss there, Ted Cohen, and told him what had happened. And I said, well, do you, do you think maybe the market has matured enough? Do you think we could do this as an aggregator? And he said, yeah. I think you, I think you could, and set up a bunch of meetings for us. And you know, I never went, never went back to LA, and uh, never got a real job after that. Now explain who Ted Cohen is, because he's a real heavyweight in the music industry. He's hard to describe. He's he's a, a super connector of super connectors. He's the guy that you know started off uh, at camp in campus radio uh, in Cleveland. Uh, and then ended up going on tour and uh, was uh, the guy that was around everyone. Like he's he's uh, he's the godfather of digital music in so many different ways. So he's he's been involved in every stage of digital music evolution going back forty years. Uh, and uh, he's been a huge, huge help for us in just getting all, all the deals done that we needed to do, uh, getting us in front of the right people who could who could make the, that stuff happen, and uh, and being a mentor and a and and a board member as well uh, in Lyric Vine to you know, really get every door open that we needed. Well, and this is a, this is a tricky one too, because again, we are talking about licensing copyrighted material and people are very protective about that sort of stuff. So how did you actually convince, well, first of all, who did you have to convince? I mean, there's labels and publishers and other rights holders and artists and composers. How did you, how did you navigate all that? Well, that was with a lot of Ted's help, uh, but it, it was publishers that we had to convince. Uh, and you know, in 2004, 2005, when we were just getting started, uh, it was really a gigantic educational process because every publisher, uh, that we would, uh, we would speak to didn't realize that there was a market for lyrics, didn't know how they would license it. Their traditional lyric licensing had been one-offs for a, uh, a book, or maybe it's a book of all the lyrics by by an artist, or it was licensed for a T-shirt or something like that. But it was always licensing a small number of of songs. Nobody had come to them and said, "We want to license everything." We had one of the major publishers that uh, uh, that we got in touch with, and they said, "Okay, well, here is our lyric licensing form. If you could fill this out uh, and." fax it to us with your request, then we'll get back to you. <laughs> and it was, it was a form for, to request like one song, one specific lyric. Even in the 2000s, you had to fax something. We don't want one song. We want everything. Like, how are we going to send them? Like, this is a major publisher. They've got a, a million songs in their catalog, right? A million pages of faxes. We don't even know what to fill out. Uh, uh, it was... Uh, it, it was quite the process. The very first uh, call that I had with a publisher about it was uh, with with EMI, and I spent like an hour and a half on the phone with them, uh, talking about the potential for the industry. And obviously, because we'd been there on the website side, we knew what the economics were. We knew what the scale of it uh, could be, and uh, 
as soon as we got off the phone with with them, they called Ted and said, you know, who the f- I, I, am I allowed to swear on this? <laughs> sure. Uh, <laughs> they said, who the fuck is this guy? And, you know, can he build a market like he says he can? And should we license them? And Ted said, yes, yes, you should. And that's why we got our first license with, with EMI uh, to, to provide lyrics. And then it, it, it just grew from there. But it's been constantly all, almost every new market and new publisher that, that we talked to has been an educational process about what the potential is, what the monetization is, and why this is a good thing for them that they should be doing. When I ask my smart speaker what a lyric is, or, or when a track is playing on my Echo show, it shows lyrics. That's coming from you. Right. This isn't just about people in a bar having an argument about what a lyric is and looking that lyric up. You are essentially reselling your services to other companies. That's the monetization model? Yeah. Yeah. We're almost exclusively B2B. Um, and we license all the different music services, websites, uh, and everyone else out there that's interested in so what's the sell job to your clients, uh, to, or not, not to your clients, what's the sell job to the music industry? You could do this yourself, but let us do the heavy lifting. Is that how it works? It, that's part of it, but the reality is most of them can't really do it themselves. Because when you look at publishing rights in particular, it's all based on fractional ownership. If you've got a band and they have four people in the band, each one of them could have a different publisher and they split up the share of the song and you have to get a license from all four of those publishers uh, to use that that song or that that lyric and it compounds even more when their song samples another song that also had four writers with different publishers on it so the individual publishers themselves can't really do it it has to be managed by someone and for all of the services that we uh, that we license, they don't want to do all of that work. They want to come to us and do one deal and get all of the content uh, and all of the licenses uh, instead of having to go and do 5,000 publishing licenses and build up a database of content. Because, of course, the the lyrics themselves are not available from the publishers. They don't have copies of, of them. We have to create each one. Okay, wait, there's my question. <laughs> How do you create an official set of lyrics for a song? Without getting them wrong. Well, we have a team of people that uh, are really, really good at listening and typing uh, across all different languages. So we, uh, we have people that sit with headphones on all day transcribing uh, the content and the lyrics to make sure that everything is 100% accurate. Okay, how many how many songs in the database? Uh, unique songs right now about 1.5, 1.6 million. Do you have Yellow Lead Better by Pearl Jam? Absolutely. I want to know 
know what your official transcription of that one I is. I could look it up while it's there. Okay. It's it certainly will have it. It's it's one of those ones though that uh, you kind of try to do the best that you can. Now you guys were in the news a little while ago about I, I explain what happened. There was there's some sort of blowback against the, the lyrics that you were providing. What what happened there? I'm guessing you're referring to the Google and Genius dispute. Yeah, what was that all about? We provide lyrics to Google that show up in Google search. Uh, so if you if you search for uh, a song on there, it'll give you a result uh, on Google without having to go to another site. And uh, that type of functionality was not popular with a particular lyric site, uh, Genius, that relies on getting traffic from search engines. Uh, and they looked at some of the lyrics and everything that uh, uh, is on there uh, is transcribed. Uh, and our process for transcription is to get a, uh, a copy of the lyric that's available from whatever source we can, uh, if possible, uh, and clean it up, do the synchronization to do that, you know, Amazon Echo line by line style synchronization, uh, for example. And Genius determined that a few of those lyrics uh, that were coming from us had at one point uh, been on their site as well uh, and tried to really make a big deal out of it, accusing Google of having, uh, uh, having ripped them off or uh, really trying to make a show of it in order to, uh, to harm Google. So they, they tried to go after Google on that, uh, and really it was coming from us, and they tried to make a big, uh, a big PR push out of it. Uh, and there were 100 songs out of our 1.5 million that at some point uh, had been on, on Genius's site. And Well, how could you tell? They watermarked the, the lyrics. Oh, I see, okay. So, how do you watermark the lyrics? It was actually uh, quite clever. They put a different style apostrophe in there. Oh, I like that. Yeah. So they could tell that they were copied because of the literal text. Yes. Yeah. Ah. So that did that get all sorted? There was really nothing to sort. Genius doesn't own the copyrights to the lyrics. The music publishers do. And the music publishers are fully aware of what our process is, and they're quite happy with our process because it makes us more efficient. Uh, and you know, we correct stuff all the time that we find from different sources. And you know, it, it's just the way that the lyric industry works. Genius works on user submission. Where are their users getting the, those lyrics? They're likely copying them from us or from other sources and then submitting them to Genius. It's, it's a vicious cycle that you know, everybody is a part of. It sounds to me like the way you get profitable doing this line of work is volume. You mentioned one and a half to 1.6 million entries or so and people listening with headphones on. It strikes me, though, that this is an administrative nightmare. What the hell were you thinking? <laughs> yeah, it is an administrative nightmare. And, I, and that's what makes us valuable to the industry because nobody else wants to do this. Uh, we've done deals with over 5,000 music publishers around the world. We have a database that manages rights on a song-by-song, territory-by-territory basis because a particular lyric can be owned by one publisher in one country and another publisher in another country. And 
it's a massive data problem that we have to process to be able to make the whole system work. And you need the, those economies of scale for it to be a functional business. And that was really the conclusion that we came to when we first tried to get licensing as a consumer service uh, in 2000, that this does not make sense for a single company to do for their own service. Uh, what, what does make sense is being a single source of licensing uh, for all of the companies. And that's how we were able to reach the scale to make uh, the service functional and sustainable. Is there anybody bigger than you? No. You're described at geeksandbeats.com as a true Canadian startup success story. <laughs> as a guy who spends most of his day talking to entrepreneurs in startups about scaling up a company to be a global success story, tell me about that for you. What's next? Is, is the end game a, a golden parachute in the form of a takeover by a Google or somebody like that? Oh, who knows? I, I think look for... For Mo and I and uh, and the rest of us involved, we don't have a particular end game in plan. Uh, we're quite happy operating the business and continuing to operate the business and building it. Uh, we don't. We never raised any VC funding, so we have no obligation to a fund to get an exit. So we're we're quite happy to continue with it uh, for as long as we remain happy. Uh, but for, for us, the growth part is what is really interesting. Uh, we recently opened offices in Vietnam and Morocco, and that's been... Wait, wait, really wait, wait, cool. wait. <laughs> Vietnam and Morocco? Which explains yeah. why you keep finding him elsewhere around the world. Well, yeah, but why there? Well, it's, it's funny. Like, those offices are mainly doing uh, lyric transcription for local languages there. So in Vietnam... Uh, we're doing Vietnamese, Thai, Bahasa, Malay, and Tagalog. And in Morocco, we're doing Arabic and Turkish. And part of it was just convenience. Uh, the Vietnam office came out of uh, us doing a license with Spotify to power lyrics for them in Vietnam and Thailand. And we needed to build up that content. And we had a former employee that post uh working for us had gone uh, and done his MBA and during his MBA he partnered uh, with a, a Vietnamese guy named Phil and post-grad they set up an outsourced dev shop where Alex our former employee stayed in Toronto and Phil is in Hanoi managing the team there so we'd work with them on uh, on some projects on things and uh, then we did the deal with with Spotify and we needed this language and we said hey can we hire a bunch of people and put them in your office in uh in hanoi and they said well sure i think we're gonna have to get a bigger office but yeah and that evolved into uh 15 16 people out of the hanoi office doing different languages and morocco we needed arabic and turkish and and mohammed my my co-founder is moroccan is uh, his, his family is back there. So we had an easy way into the territory uh, where it's actually Mo's cousin that is uh, running the office there for us. And he hired people and he manages 
them for us. And we had a, a trusted partner uh, that we could leverage to get into the territory and set something up with really low friction uh, on that. So it, it's been looking for those types of, of conveniences uh, and efficiencies to make those international expansions work. How many languages does Lyric Find work in right now? 16, I think. Wow. Wow. And I guess that's where the real money is outside of English. Well, it's it's everywhere. And I think when... That's the growth. Yeah, that's that's a lot of the growth right now. And I think what we've seen a lot over the last uh, couple of years is really the expansion and growth of a lot more localized music services around the world. Uh, and where those are services where they're really starting to prioritize that local content and, and it matters. Daryl, before we let you go, what is your favorite misheard lyric? <laughs> I can't use Jimi Hendrix, right? That, that one was taken. It's already been taken, man. It's taken. Uh, yeah. You blinded by the light. Blinded by light is, is a good one. Uh, I don't even know if I have one. You'd really think that I should have an answer for this, for this <laughs> wouldn't you? But there isn't one uh, that stands out. Well, with 1.6 million to choose from. Yeah, even though I've, I've spent my life and career dealing with music and lyrics, uh, the irony is that I've forgotten so much of it now <laughs> that uh, it's, it's almost embarrassing. Well, you don't need to remember it anymore. You know where to go to get the answers. <laughs> yes. You've sent it all offshore. You've outsourced it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly, we've, we've outsourced our brains. I feel the same way about a thing called the Bloomberg Terminal for financial news and analysis. I don't need to remember anything anymore. I just need to remember the computer code to look it up. Yeah. Great having you with us, Daryl. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks so much for having me. Daryl Ballantyne is one the third of Lyric Find. He joined us from his home office in Toronto. My favorite Mondegreen misheard lyric, by the way, comes from Duran Duran's Hungry Like the Wolf. I thought the line straddle the line in discord and rhyme because there was a backlash against disco by the Rock-Ons at the time. Actually, it was a response to it that read, straddle the line of disco and wine. <laughs> oh, come on. Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Or stream us live at geeksandbeats.com. Support the show on Patreon. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for a daily dose of the world's most popular podcasts with Alan Cross and Michael the Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.